0: Good afternoon, everybody. This is John Fadul with the Geopolitics This Week podcast. And I wanted to start off by introducing a little bit about myself. Um, like I said, my name is John Fadul. I'm a recent graduate of The Ohio State University with a major in world politics, focusing on international security, international development, and international finance, um, with a minor in geography. Now, The reason why I've chosen to start with South America is mostly because it is in my firm belief that it is often an undercovered topic in geopolitics history and just world affairs in general. It is perceived as a very sleepy, very boring continent. Um, Obviously, every once in a while you get a story about police violence in Brazil, and so that perception tends to change every once in a while. Um, But in general, people don't really know much about South America, and I have been, in a way, blessed to be raised part of my life in South America. I was born in Santiago, Chile in 1997, where I spent two years, so I don't really remember it that much, Uh, but I did visit it um, in 2014 to see all the sites, reconnect with my heritage a little bit, and... That was an excellent experience. Uh, but to move on, after living in Chile from 1997 through the beginning of 1999, my parents moved to Venezuela, to Caracas. And we lived there from 1999 roughly to the end of 2004. And that was prob- it is probably one of the more impactful experiences in my life, mostly because at a very young age, I got to see... Um, not only political change happen, um, But to get a preview of what the country would be- end up looking like uh, As my dad at the time was working for Procter & Gamble And they had their regional headquarters in Venezuela at the time And one of the very few last nights we spent in Venezuela Before um, Procter & Gamble decided to fly out all the staff Was um, when uh the protests were going on as there had been a massive agreement in the private sector to go on strike and this of course led to a counter protest from the supporters of hugo chavez and these people marched up the hills um, because caracas is based in a valley that's surrounded by a series of very large hills and mountains and we were at the top of one of these hills and hugo chavez supporters marched all the way up to our little compound that p owned and housed all their staff and just absolutely destroyed the cars that were parked outside of our compound. And those cars belonged to the um, maintenance and staff that helped maintain the property. And I just remember multiple people dropped, jumping up and down on this um, Cadillac DeVille. I think it's a 1998 Cadillac DeVille. And broke open the windows and eventually... By the time they were leaving um, the protest in front of our compound, the car had been completely burnt out. And I think it was only two weeks later that P&G um, deployed a large fleet of rental cars to the compound and had drove us all to the International Airport to have us flown out. And after they had evacuated us, um, I spent the rest of my childhood serve bouncing around the United States, um, living in Indiana, Georgia, New Jersey, Florida, um, Washington, D.C. for university, Ohio for university, and now in Utah where I'm based now. Um, and so for, for an upbringing for a young child or just even a teenager, it was a pretty um, disruptive experience and it molded me a lot. And so when I started doing things like competitive debate, I wanted to become more familiar with south american history my my heritage financial flows international development which sort of influenced me to go down the education route i chose to go down and so when we are going to be talking about south america i split it into two parts mostly because when i was creating the outline for these two podcasts um, originally i just wanted to go through um, the history the relationships and what i expect from the major players in south america from the future and what i realized very quickly was that if i did a single podcast with all those topics it would be a two to three hour podcast and so i decided to split it in half Um, in this podcast we're going to be focusing on the history and how that history has affected the relationships between um, the south american countries and then part two which i'll be releasing at when on wednesday morning um, will focus predominantly about what i expect to see from all these south american countries in the future and so for the sake of the podcast in order to keep it short uh, well not short i wanted to keep it very well informed uh, but there are three countries in south america well two are countries and one's a um basically a colonial province um are the two nations of Guyana and Suriname, and then french guiana um Two of these nations are former English colonies and Dutch colonies um, that are independent nations, but they're small. They don't make the news a lot, uh, mostly because they're fairly boring, uh, but they are interesting in their own way. And I could easily do a podcast on those two. And then the French possession of Guiana is technically part of France proper. And every time they're given a referendum to declare independence, they stay as part of France. Um, so effectively, they're a little piece of France still on the South American continent. And so uh, whatever happens for France is sort of a reflection of what happens there. And so for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to be skipping those three countries and focusing more on the big players on the continent, which are Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Bolivia, Paraguay, Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. Um, these are the important countries. These are the nations that have shaped its history. And these are the ones that are going to be consuming the majority of our conversation. And so, without a further ado, we shall begin with the history of South America. So as the colonial period began, Spain and Portugal, who managed to seize upon their early advantages in sailing, began to colonize South America and segments of North America, predominantly Mexico. And what Spain and Portugal quickly realizes that they are going to be competing over very similar pieces of land. And so in a tale that has been somewhat mythologized, they took the issue to the Pope as both nations are very Catholic. And the Pope grabbed a sword from one of his guards and cut the at the time known globe of the Earth in half. And as a result, Portugal was given a slice, and so was Spain which is how Portugal came to own Brazil and how Spain effectively got the rest of the continent, Mexico, and most of North America at the time. And so when we start talking about colonial history, that piece is incredibly important because not only did it stop effectively a war between the two early colonial powers of the time, uh, but it would cement these sort of language and cultural differences for the rest of the continent's history. And so, during the colonial period, we saw a massive expansion in Spanish and Portuguese extractive efforts to collect as much silver and gold from places like Brazil, Peru, and Mexico. Um, The resources of gold and silver funded most of the Spanish treasure fleets and the massive buildup of the Spanish Armada. Unfortunately, uh, or I guess fortunately in the case of the English, the English would sink most of the Armada after a good segment of it was sunken in a storm in the North Sea. And so, at that time, the Spanish colonial power was pretty weak when Napoleon, in 1808, invaded Spain and Portugal. And so, when Napoleon invaded both of these states, um, the two reactions of the two powers were very, very different. Um, The Spaniards didn't flee to their colonies in the way the Portuguese did. And so as a result, because the monarchy was still trapped on the continent, the power to maintain all their possessions fell to their viceroys. And most of these viceroys were either incompetent or petty dictators. And their ability to manage these colonial provinces without the support of Spain became very tenuous, leading to most, if not all, of the Spanish possessions to declare independence in 1808. Um, Those nations were Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Chile, Argentina, and Paraguay, while the nations of Peru and Bolivia only achieved independence in 1820 as the Viceroy's in these um, colonial provinces had the capability, the manpower, and the intelligence to maintain their control. Um, it was only when Simón Bolívar would come into um, Peru and Bolivia that would see um, those nations liberated. Uh, Uruguay would be in, uh, made independent through the um, intervention of Argentina on Uruguay's behalf, mostly because the Argentines wanted Uruguay. Uh, but the Brazilians, when the Uruguayans were able to declare independence, would intervene on Uruguay's behalf and allow it to become an independent state um but it's because of that spanish de- decision not to flee to their colonies that led to many of them breaking europe breaking from the empire so early what the portuguese monarchy did was very different as the brazilian as the portuguese monarchy fled to brazil and made brazil essentially an integral part or exactly an integral part of portugal brazil and portugal on the map were the same country they were part of the Portuguese-Brazilian Empire. And as a result, when you migrate the entire government bureaucracy to one of these colonial possessions, not only do you increase the nation's capacity to have a independent, competent civil service, but you also make it more autonomous from the home country, assuming the home country is occupied. And so when Portugal and Spain were eventually made independent after the conclusion of the French wars... Um, the Portuguese monarchy would flee Well, not flee, return to Portugal um, But not too much later um, The Brazilians would declare independence At the mid, midway through the 1820s And declare themselves an independent monarchy Which would be the Brazilian monarchy And as a result Brazil, in many ways, was the better outcome As not only did they inherit many of the Portuguese institutions When they broke away um, but they also inherited the sort of small industrial capacity that developed in the nation when Portugal was occupied by the French, and so Brazil, when it parted ways with Portugal, was a much stronger um, nation on their on their feet than the Portuguese than the, all the Spanish uh, former colonial possessions were when they broke free. However, when I talk about breakaways or successful breakaways from their colonial powers, um, I'm being very flexible with the definition of clean. As, as when we get into um, into the countries in where all of these sort of the, the madness and the chaos sort of begins, we realize that even though many of these countries achieved independence from their colonial powers... In most cases it ended up resulting in much worse and bloodier conflicts as would sort of be the preview to when um, large portions of Africa would be able to achieve independence as well. And so to start, we're going to start with the story of Grand Colombia, the brainchild of one Simon Bolivar of Venezuela. So Grand Colombia, originally got its start when Venezuela and Colombia both declared independence in 1810, but would only sort of coalesce into a formal institution when both nations agreed to help Ecuador achieve independence. Ecuador had achieved, well, achieved is a sort of stretch of that word right there, but had declared independence in 1809, but failed to break away as the viceroys were able to reachieve power. And so Colombia... In Venezuela would ally together to help free Ecuador. And because of the sheer political personality that was Simón Bolívar, would eventually get all three nations to agree to form a federalized union known as Gran Colombia. And this structure would form in 1819. Now what ended up causing the fail of Gran Colombia were a couple of critical factors that political scientists, people who study international relations, sort of point to us being the markers of a nation that is heading towards failure. One was the internal divisions between um, South American countries. Despite technically all being mestizo or Spanish heritage, Um, mestizo, for those who don't know, is the Mixing of Spanish and native heritage. So, uh, and all these countries technically all share a common language and a common heritage. But because the geography in South America, specifically in northern South America, is so innerly divided that the cultures of Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador started to develop in very different individualized ways and when money was so tight when grand columbia was founded none of these nations really wanted to raise taxes to help pay for the other country that was across uh, the rainforest or across the mountain ranges and so these internal divisions would see grand columbia's debt explode as um, essentially the state started raising debt to trade favors within itself to get anything done and when as we've learned today, if you're not the reserve currency, your ability to pay back debts that aren't denominated in your currency, which Grand Colombia's weren't, um, the ability for the state to be self-sustaining comes into question. So that's part one. The second one was Simon Bolivar himself. Simon Bolivar, like many revolutionaries, was made for the revolution, but not for the governance of what happens after the revolution concludes. Simon Bolivar would go on to help make Peru and Bolivia independent between um, 1810 through 1830. But as a result of him being away so long from the capital of Gran Colombia, the nation would be run by all those leaders that wanted to see it fail. Those leaders that would raise debt to pay for petty favors. Those people who would steal from the treasury the gold stores, to pay for their own political interests within their own states under the the Grand Colombian federal system. And so with Simón Bolívar away trying to make the rest of Peru and Bolivia independent, he failed to save his own state. And so when he returned to the capital of Grand Colombia in 1826, he would find a state that was barely holding itself together and would end up dying in office as its president – with only the state to dissolve a couple of years later in 1831. And so, when we talk about the relationships between all these countries, Venezuela and Colombia's bitterness towards each other is partly rooted in this geographical divide between the two, but this internalized hostility that each of these nations wants to intervene into each other in in, in each other's affairs, even though Venezuela has always been consumed by its own problems, and Colombia has been fighting in an internal insurgency for most of its independence. And so that is, explains a lot of the tensions in the northern part of South America, as this part, while united in the quest for independence, would soon become internally divided over the affairs of governance. And so this was used a lot, specifically during the time of Hugo Chavez who had on multiple occasions deployed the military, his military, the Venezuelan military, to the border and have tanks actively patrol the border of Colombia because he always said that the Colombians were trying to interfere in the free state of Bolivar in Venezuela. And it's because of that innate historical cultural austerity towards each other that these states have never been able to cooperate on anything of mutual benefit. Like drug interdiction, um, economic integration, or allowing the Colombians to help the Venezuelans rehabilitate their oil industry, which the Colombians have gotten very good at. Um, And so when we look at Northern South America, we have to keep in mind that in order for anything to happen, those things need to be overcome. So let's make our way further south to Peru, Bolivia, and Chile now these nations openly and actively campaign against each other in the international community bolivia would recently in the past three years bring a case to the international criminal criminal court claiming that its losses in the great war of the pacific were illegal and that the international criminal court and thus the u.n should rule on its behalf to encourage the chileans to return bolivia's access to the pacific now, what is the Great War of the Pacific? The Great War of the Pacific can probably be surmised as the dumbest war on the continent for a couple of reasons. One, it was over taxes. At this time, Bolivia held a large segment of what's known as the Atacama Desert in northern, in what is now northern Chile. And the Atacama Desert has been a... Bountiful source of everything from saltpeter, which is what you use in fertilizers, explosives, um, lithium, aluminum, and in some cases, copper. At this time, when the Great War of the Pacific was about to occur, so this would have been 1863, um, Chile was the only country at this time that had the ability to build the facilities to extract saltpeter and all these mineral resources. So, the Chilean and Bolivian governments signed a contract where the Chilean government would concede to help uh, that would separate some of their profits from the extraction of saltpeter to the Bolivian government. And the Bolivian government would agree not to increase the taxes on Chilean miners for 25 years. Um, as a result, within the first five to 10 years of that arrangement, Bolivia would start to try to raise taxes on chilean miners and the chilean government on multiple occasions tried to not only mediate talks into finding a compromise on this issue uh, but would even involve the other regional power peru into these talks to see if peru who had always had closer relations to bolivia than chile if they could convince the bolivians to reach a compromise and that brings us to our second reason The second reason why these nations hate each other and why the war was sort of inevitable was that Bolivia and Peru at one point were a united confederation. And after they separated, they would sign a mutual defense pact that would see um, Bolivia come to the assistance of Peru if it was attacked and vice versa if Bolivia was attacked. And as a result... Um, Peru, who was actually not a very willing partner in this agreement by the time this conflict was about to kick off, um, multiple times at the request of the Chileans attempted to mediate this conflict. And eventually the Bolivians declared that they would nationalize the Chilean mines in their segments of the Atacama Desert and the Pacific um, and would offer uh, no compensation. The Chileans at this time would deploy 200 troops to their mines in Bolivian territory, effectively starting the war. Um, the Chilean military at the time, and this is why the war is sort of stupid in a way, is because the Peruvians and the Bolivians had, at this time, a larger combined force of between twenty and 30,000 men. The Chileans, on the other hand, being a much smaller population, only had a um, fielded army of under 15,000 men. At this time, 10,000 of those men were in southern Chile, fighting an insurrection of local natives against the Spanish and mestizo government, uh, a problem that still plagues Chile to this day. And one, many South American nations would proceed to fight earlier before this conflict or even after this conflict. And so the Chileans were able to deploy only a poultry force into the Atacama Desert to protect these mining interests. And by every stretch of the imagination, the Chileans should have lost the war. Um, and the only reason why they didn't is because of a couple of reasons. One, Chilean institutions are stronger than their counterparts in Peru and Bolivia. What separated Chile from many of the the former Spanish colonies on the continent's west coast is that Chile had never been a source of mineral wealth for the Spanish and as a result the Spanish would turn Chile into a wayward um, logistical and farming hub for ships that were passing their way on the west coast on uh, west coast of South America. And when you're constructing a logistical hub, you need a competent, loyal but in some ways autonomous government in order to manage the affairs of this logistical hub, which is virtually on the other side of the planet from Spain. And so when Chile would declare independence in 18 in the 1810s, um, not only would they achieve independence without the assistance of Simon Bolivar or the English or the Argentine Confederation, um, they have the institutions to manage themselves. Um, after independence, which many of these states struggled with after they achieved independence. Um, Peru and Bolivia in particular suffered from this problem because when you're in an extractive colony, the only institutions you have are the ones that are needed to help move resources from point A to point B back to colonial um, headquarters uh, in Spain or or Portugal, point C. And so um, Chileans were able to mobilize another 15,000 troops within a short period of time while Peru and Bolivia struggled to move their bureaucracies to deploy their troops to all the necessary locations that would see the heaviest conflict um and then here's the second reason um the Chilean military at the time despite being smaller had better training and had more equipment the Bolivians and the Peruvians were both experiencing a famine at this time which When your army is not well-fed or well-maintained, they're more prone to sickness, disease, and infections. And so when the battles start kicking off a year after um, the war was declared, many of the troops fielded by Peru and Bolivia were already unfit for duty. And so when the Chileans were essentially lined up in a straight line and told to march into the desert, Um, they encountered very little resistance pushing into the northern Atacama Desert and to the segments of land that Peru and Bolivia owned, and what is now the northern segment of Chile. And the third reason is that the Chileans had inherited a large segment of their navy through sales with the United States after the Civil War. Um, When the Civil War would conclude, the United States would have... um, Not only a ton of traditional wooden-hauled ships for sale, um, but also have the powerful, but would inherit the powerful ironclads of the time, these sort of pre-dreadnoughts. These battleships of the mid eighteenth, the mid nineteenth century, the Chileans would end up owning two of these ships and then purchase another three or four traditional iron hulled ships from the United States. At the time, Peru only had one ironclad and three other traditional hulled ships, and then Bolivia had a a navy that was nearly non-existent. And as a result, when um, your offensive capacity is so dependent on these ships. Um, the Peruvians made the mistake of sailing most of their offensive assets to the south of Chile towards the Strait of Magellan, which is where most of the trade traffic and um, goods shipped by the English or the Spanish to Chile at this time after independence were being shipped. The Chileans would mobilize most of their offensive capacity to take out um, the single ironclad that was sent south, leaving the Peruvians without basically 60% of their offensive capacity. And that At that point, it was just a matter of time till the superior Chilean offensive force and naval training would whittle down the rest of the Peruvian Navy, allowing for one of the first um, amphibious-based landings in Lima, Peru, which would see the Chilean military um, take the capital and then eventually allow them to land more troops in the northern Atacama Desert, provide logistical support to the troops marching through the desert, and then have them move it, uh, march into La Paz, um, the capital of Bolivia. And so, when we talk about the relationships on the continent today, as I sort of hinted when I started talking about this, this segment of history, um, Peruvian relations have improved between um, Chile and Peru, mostly because the Chileans were willing to hand back some of the land that they would take in the treaty, and so tensions between the two nations still run high and they still consider each 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 other competitors in the region um but if there's an a requirement to compromise on a specific issue that affects them both that can be done the relations between bolivia and chile have never improved to this day neither nation has diplomatic relations with each other and require the mediation of existing um diplomats in peru or Paraguay, to intervene on their behalf in order to get communications across. And to this day, the Bolivians still challenge the Chilean um, land grabs that they achieved in their victory. And to this day, um, and I've said that twice now, um, the Peruvians have a navy of some 200 ships. Now, most of these are like fishing boats, um, trawlers, and some rowboats in Um, Lake Titicaca, which is one of the larger freshwater lakes in the world. Um, But that navy just sits there waiting to be deployed to the Pacific if they were ever to take back the land. Um, But Bolivia, because of that issue, can never reconcile relations with Chile. And Chile, the other way around, um, Chile won the warfare in square, and I'm a bit biased there. Um, But the Bolivians' unwillingness to try to reach a compromise but just wanting the access to the Pacific um, means that there's not going to be any compromise in the future because um, nations giving up land um, is not only unpopular, but it's almost unheard of until the recent um, separation of North Sudan from South Sudan. And so the ability for that reconciliation to take place is unlikely. Uh, And so when we discuss the relationship between Peru, Bolivia, and Chile— It can essentially be boiled down to that one conflict in the mid to late 19th century. So we're going to move now to the eastern side of the continent and discuss um, relations between Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, and Argentina. Argentina and Brazil, after achieving independence, would become rivals. They're both large countries with large populations and the mineral wealth of brazil combined with the wealth of its patrons the large plantation owners the oligarchs or the the, the caldilos that they're known as in brazil um, would be a natural challenge to argentina who had a also a large population a large agricultural base um, as part of the uh, the uh, la plata region and it's also its mineral wealth and so these two natural competitors would ultimately shape the politics of the eastern side of South America. Um, but what would shape its other two partners in this this next coming conflict, um, Paraguay and Uruguay, is their fight over buffer, uh, or land that prevents two nations from touching each other. Uruguay, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, is that natural buffer. Because Uruguay is a bit of a, a bit of an oddball on the continent. Upon its independence, it had a population of less than seventy-five thousand people, most of whom were ranchers from um, Spain and Italy. Um, even though it was technically a Spanish colony, the Italian population was considerably larger. And so, Uruguay, in many South American circles, is still sort of considered a Italian colony, an unofficial Italian colony. Um, but when Argentina and Brazil started fighting over influence over these two, uh, over Uruguay, there would be a civil war that break up in tiny Uruguay between the Colorados and the, the Blancos. Now, the Colorados would lose this war, this civil war, and the Blancos would be put into power by the Argentines. Um, and that would be the government in Uruguay for the basically the first 30 years of independence. But later... Um, the Colorados would make an attempt to take back power starting the second um, Uruguay Civil War, technically second, but it's considered the first one. Um, Because in in these trying times when you're an independent country, first independent, any conflict that happens during that transition is technically the one that makes the nation's first government. So it's not considered the first civil war. Um, But in many ways it was. And so when the Colorados returned with the support of the Brazilians to try and take power, um, the Argentines would declare their neutrality, mostly because they wanted to see how their favorites in the government would, ha- would handle themselves and how the conflict would break out. But unfortunately, what they didn't um, count on was Paraguay. Paraguay, despite its bad geography... Um, half the country is, is shrouded in rainforest, and the other part um, resides in the La uh, the, the Plata region with access to the, the Paraguay and Parana rivers, both very good rivers if you're trying to um, move goods from point A to point B from your your farms to the ocean. And so during this time, not only was Paraguay rich in resources, but it was rich in manpower. It was able to field an army at its peak of 250,000 men and this army would not only be well equipped but well trained as the paraguay government made an effort to achieve good relations with the united states allowing for most of their professional military class to be trained at american military academies like west point or be trained alongside american soldiers and so paraguay despite its small size and seemingly unimportance in the region was a regional power and paraguay seeing another small nation like itself being sort of influenced by its two larger neighbors Paraguay announced that it would intervene on behalf of the the, the blind and government and of course this wasn't popular with either of these two nations and after um, declaring war on the, the Colorado supported by Brazil um, Paraguay effectively had declared war on Brazil itself also and would invade Brazil and Obviously, when you're fighting your much larger neighbor, not a smart idea, but the Paraguayans, at the start of this war, actually had the advantage. As I mentioned, they had a larger army, better equipped, better trained. Um, the problem was is that they were invading straight into a rainforest, and so progress was slow, infections were likely, disease was spreading, and so their offensive into Brazil would be slowed, not by the strength of the Brazilian army, which at this time wasn't not only it was not only not present in southern Brazil, but largely incompetent, and a small force as well, um, the Paraguayans would be stopped by the, the horrible Brazilian geography, and we'll talk about that geography in the next episode. Um, but it does play an crucial part in this um, this war, um, and so when Paraguay was getting held up in the rainforest in Brazil when it was trying to invade from its Paraguay's own north into southern Brazil they requested that the Argentine government allow Paraguayan troops to march through northern Argentina in order to reach a small segment of southern Brazil that borders Argentina. And so when a nation asks another nation to let troops pass through their their territory, that doesn't ring a lot of um, green bells or green lights in the government. And in fact, um, the Argentines suspected that if they were to allow this, the Paraguayans might want to try and take land along the way, essentially invading Argentina with Argentina's consent. And so Argentina did the only thing that they felt like they could do, and that was say no. Uh, the Paraguayans um, were sort of the Germans of the, of the time, declaring war on two fronts and would invade Argentina. And shortly thereafter, when um, Paraguayan troops would cross into Argentina, Argentina would declare war. Um, And when all this sort of madness was going on, the Colorados had defeated the Blancos in Uruguay, taking power of the government. And so after Paraguay had essentially declared war on Brazil and Argentina, the Argentinians would invite the Uruguayans into the fold and become what would be known as the Triple Alliance, Um, the alliance of Uruguay, Brazil, and Argentina versus Paraguay. And as a result, The name of this war that I have been talking about was the War of the Triple Alliance. Paraguay versus the world. At the very beginning of the war, Paraguay would actually achieve multiple different victories against Argentina and Brazil, taking decent swaths of territory. As the Argentines, while having a competent navy, uh, not competent navy, a competent military and a competent army, they weren't able to deploy it as fast, and so they did lose... Um, the small little holding forces that they deployed early on in the conflict to make sure the Paraguayans would be slowed down. Um, The Brazilians lost brutally early on, mostly because not only was their military small, but as I said before, they weren't exactly competent. And so the Paraguayans were able to achieve some very crucial and early victories in this conflict. The problem is, is that when the combined populations of Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay were combined, they were larger than those that could be fielded by Paraguay. Paraguay was a much smaller nation, much smaller population. Um, so you have this sort of same scenario that Chile had in the war with the Pacific. The problem was is that they didn't have the navy. They didn't have um, the ability to fight on one single front that they were familiar with. And the Chileans had the Atacama Desert and they had the seas. The Paraguayans, being mostly creatures of the temperate plains of the La Plata, were not very competent in fighting wars in the rainforest, which is why they um, were held up in southern Brazil and why they declared war on Argentina in order to get access to better way, better, in regions where they were more proficient in. The problem was is that the Argentines were just as proficient, and so they started to lose um, battles with the Argentines very quickly, even though they had a couple of very early victories. And at this point, like Germany and so many other future wars, it became a war of attrition. And so Brazil and Argentina, having the population sizes to field larger militaries over time and having more resources, were able to build up their their militaries and have the experience and training that they were able to gain through these conflicts to build competent militaries and then just slowly and slowly push their way into Paraguay, into the La Plata region until um, the... Paraguayan military would eventually be defeated. Um, And so at the conclusion of this conflict, um, Argentina and Brazil were both on the brink of bankruptcy. This ended up being a very expensive war. Um, But Argentina and Brazil would go on to recover, and so would Uruguay. Paraguay would never go on to recover. Paraguay, at the end of the war, would lose over 60% of its population and 75% of all its males. And so when you have a, obviously a substantial loss of life like that, but one that was demographically skewed towards one half of the equation that's crucial to rebuilding a population, um, the nation does not recover in a short period of time or even a long period of time. Paraguay to this day remains a poor, internally unstable country and even if they wanted to hurt someone they really couldn't because if they were to lash out in anger against another country they would likely end up hurting themselves and fall inward as coups counter coups um rival governments would be set up paraguay to this day remains an unstable mess that is incapable of hurting anyone just itself and so paraguay remains a very quiet poor-stricken nation in the interior of South America, despite its access to um, the Paraná and Paraguay river, rivers, its abundance of resources in the, the Chaco region, and its abundance of agricultural wealth. The nation just hasn't been able to recover. Uruguay, in its relation to its other two neighbors, would still be consumed by civil war and internal conflict for the next basically four or five decades and would only achieve its its sort of status as a neutral nation in the latter half of the twentieth century, nineteen eighty, when the military government finally transitioned um, back into a democratic one. And this new democratic government would use all its goodwill with international creditors, um, the IMF, to essentially reconstitute itself, build a massive service sector. Um, build up its ports in Montevideo to the point where now the ports in uh, Uruguay are the best on the continent, and so now it's a logistical hub of South America. And because its expansion into service, um, upper-end manufacturing have been so successful, it has become the neutral Switzerland of South America. Most of the rich politicians, rich business owners all have homes and property in Uruguay. The Uruguayan banking system is essentially built upon the wealth of Brazil and Argentina. Very similarly, very similar to how Switzerland built its reputation as a neutral nation, using that neutrality to play its neighbors off each other but also to get the bounties of the government of some of that corruption all that wealth to be concentrated into Spain, into Switzerland itself. So it could become a regional competitor in all things, uh, high scale manufacturing service, um, service sector banking and all that good and fun stuff. Um, Argentina and Brazil after the war, of the triple Alliance would sort of in a way bury the hatchet. Um, and this would sort of reach its pinnacle with the creation of Mercosur it, this Southern, um, Southern uh, South America sort of so it's a bit of an oxymoron here. Southern South America trade, trade, um, trade association group very similar to the European Union, um, but with none of the ambitions to have a single currency. And so Brazil and Argentina would unite to form a powerful um, economic block on the continent. The problem is is that not only did sort of um, Brazilian economic success and Argentina's success um, sort of diverge, um Argentina would grow exponentially um from 1980 till present day while Argentina would experience four or five some defaults on its debt a massive devaluation of the peso um and just economic turmoil that the Brazilians were more than happy to take advantage of by becoming the south american continent's most prominent and um prominent power and economic power um And the Argentines, as a result, because of this economic weakness, couldn't really do anything about it. Um, But in this new world that we're beginning to enter, where capital is scarce, where costs start to matter again, Argentina remains a cost-competitive environment. Um, Not only has the peso fallen so much that the currency is extremely cheap, um, but the Paraná River's access to the Argentine interior, where all its mineral agricultural wealth is stored um, having that access to the Paraná River to transport goods up and down and then the city of Buenos Aires being a logistical hub you have the perfect match of cheap access to goods matched with scarce capital that could generate yield um, and so Argentina looks to be the successor of the future while Brazil falls off because Brazil's geography, as I hinted early on in this conversation, um, is not very good. It's very mountainous because of the Brazilian shield, which prevents um, Brazil from having good access to ports or even access to its interior. Um, and the rainforest themselves make um, ag- agriculture incredibly tough as the rainforest foreign fauna would absorb all the nutrients in the soil, preventing um, anything like wheat, barley, Corn, soy to develop without massive terraforming through the introduction of lime fertilizers or other chemical additives that could help reduce the acidity of the soil, but also the ability to have that soil regenerate without the temperate climate in the winters that allow Argentina to succeed. And so when we start looking at the relationships between basically most of the countries on the eastern coast of South America, they are determined by this conflict of the Triple Alliance and how that sort of cemented, um, broke, and sort of reformed new relations. And so that is likely going to conclude at this first part of the podcast. Um, like I said, didn't want this to be too long, and I sort of already hinted at what, at what I think about some of these countries going into the future. Um, but to conclude... South America is in many ways a tragic continent, in very similar ways that Africa is a tragic continent as well. Um, I am a strong believer in the importance of geography, as geography can make or break nations, even if they have strong institutions. And when we look at South America, you only have two rivers that have the ability to generate capital or make it easier to transport important exports from the core to the coast. And those two rivers are the Amazon and the Parana River. The Amazon River is not very good, uh, mostly because it's in a very tropical climate, meaning that the The boundaries of the river are incredibly muddy and very poor to create the right sort of infrastructure to create a port or a hub where goods can be offloaded and loaded onto ships. And the Paraná River, while a good river, is not very long and it only benefits Argentina and Paraguay. And so when we start looking at many of these nations that are, are on the western coast of the country, or even the northern part of the continent. Um, it's not for a lack of trying that some of these countries have succeeded and or failed. And we'll get into that when we talk on Wednesday. But it is it is, it is hard for me um, to sort of talk about my continent in a way because um, the past 40 years, essentially, since the end of the Cold War, have been very good for South America. Um the peace dividend achieved by multiple different large powers in in Europe and the United States from essentially demilitarizing um, and all that free money, the capital, the um, maturing of the baby boomers into mature workers, where all their capital was at play, allowed many South American countries to succeed where most of them would have likely failed. And so, this this golden age for South America is likely not going to continue. Um, and I have great fears for South America, um, not only because I have re-submerged myself into the culture of the, in the region, um, but in general, um, we're beginning to see the return of history, the return of geography as important critical factors into a continent's success. Um, I am not a geographical determinist, um, but it is important. And when we observe the the history of these nations combined with the geography, as I will talk about in the next episode, that's where I start to get worried. Um, but I just wanted to to end on a more positive note. I'm very excited to do this podcast. I have been sitting on this idea um, almost as long as I had been sitting on the idea for writing articles on The Exchange, um, which I now publish on my website, Um jfgeopolitics.com jf on geopolitics.com and that I actively share on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, my Twitter's at real John Fadul and like I said this provides me a platform and a con- and a way to continue my long form conversations without having to worry about cutting out as much. Um, when you have a video on YouTube for example, um, you have to pay for premium in order to have the access to the controls to play your your video offline, but also when your phone is locked. And so the podcasting format allows you to, to talk to me, for, allows for me to talk to you, the viewer, um, about these things for longer periods of time, but also gives you the flexibility to play and pause whenever you want. And again, I'm just super excited. Um, obviously some of these topics can be a bit of a bummer, um, as South American history is sort of a, it's, it's like that one quote from Shakespeare of the one man on the stage screaming with bluster and fury, all signifying nothing. And I think that does a very good job of surmising the tragedy, the beauty, the humor, and, the the cast that is South America. And one I look forward to um, divulging more in the next podcast, which should be going up Wednesday, where I talk about what do I think is in the future for many of these countries as a geopolitical expert. And I hope that many of you will return to hear that podcast. Have a great um, rest of your week. Um, happy trading for those of you that are going to be hearing this from the exchange. And for everyone else have an amazing week and I look forward to talking to all of you all of you again on Wednesday. Have a great day guys.